Let's pray, shall we? Father, indeed, we're so grateful today that Jesus died for sinners. We come to you this morning as sinners. There's nothing good in us, in and of ourselves. We have no merit. We can't come to you uh, and offer some, uh, some great thing we have done, some good thing we have done. Uh, we can't offer you um, holiness, righteousness, honesty, morality. We only can come to you because of Christ. And we do come to you this morning with his righteousness, with his holiness. We come to you in prayer and worship today because of what he has done for us and because in your kindness and grace you have saved us. And now we are clothed in our Savior's righteousness. We're so grateful today, Father, for safety you provided for each one of us on the roads. We pray for any who are driving now. Provide safety for them and give wisdom to those who shouldn't come because of the weather. Watch over those who are not able to be here because of weather, because of illness or other struggle. And I pray that some will be able to even to watch the service online and to be encouraged through your word by means of that. I pray, Father, for uh, those who are indeed struggling today, I think of, of um, Valida too, and ask your grace in ministry in her life. Encourage her, strengthen her, give wisdom to her and to Arnold as they consider her situation. Draw them close to you at this time. Father, I pray for Pastor as he opens the word today. Use the scriptures to minister to our hearts. We are here because we need to hear from you because we need to hear you speak to us, because there are needs in our lives of every, of every type, spiritual, emotional, there are other challenges in our lives. We need to hear you speak to us. Please do, do so today through your word. Bless Pastor as he, as he exegetes the scriptures this morning. Bless our worship as we lift our voices to you. I pray that it will not just be uh, us um, speaking words, but that our hearts will be engaged and that we will be seeing out of love for you and in a desire to see you lifted up. Thank you for Jesus now. I pray these things in his name. Amen. And good morning, church family, and grace to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9, we're going to look at the entire chapter this morning. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 404. I've entitled today's message, Rebuilding Our Resolve. And I'll begin in a word of prayer, and then we'll consider the text together. Let's bow together now. Lord, we thank you for this good day. And we thank you for the warmth of this building and of this community. We pray that you would help us, Lord, to be attentive to your word, that we would understand it and apply it to our lives. And Lord, thank you so much for the gift of technology, which allows us to broadcast this service into the homes of church members who could not travel today due to the weather. And Lord, might you use this time in the Word in their lives too. 
Lord, we want you to be glorified by this service, and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've talked a lot about Reformation in this series. A Reformation is an intensive effort by God's people to reform their lives and institutions by the Word of God. And a related word is revival. A revival is a widespread spiritual awakening that results in new disciples being made and dispirited disciples being re-energized. And this series has taught us how reformations and revivals are ignited. We've seen that it happens when the Spirit of God moves among His people such that they are consumed with a newfound zeal for God's cause. This is what happened to Nehemiah and to Ezra. God so worked in them that they burned with passion for the truth of God and for the people of God and the cause of God, such that they wanted to lead God's people back to faithfulness, even if it was very costly. This series has also taught us how biblical reformations are fanned into flame, and that is by worship. Now, what is worship? Well, it's a special time of interaction between God and His people in which God reveals Himself through His Word and then His people respond with praise and obedience. And two weeks ago, we studied the worship service that fueled Israel's ongoing reformation. We saw how the whole congregation of Israel gathered for this service, more than 40,000 people in number, men, women, and children. And the service was led by Ezra the scribe. We watched him ascend that great wooden platform built for the purpose. And he took a copy of God's word with him. And we watched as Ezra opened the word of God and how the whole congregation spontaneously rose to its feet out of respect for God's word. And then Ezra read from the word and he expounded the word. And he did this for hours and hours. And as he did so, the people of God lifted their hands in the air and then they crouched low to the ground and they affirmed the truths of Scripture. They affirmed their commitment to follow God's Word. And as a result of that worship service, there was a national moment of repentance and faith and of rejoicing for pardon received. Well, today, friends, we're going to learn how biblical reformations are sustained over the long haul. How they're sustained over the long haul. Now, of course, last week we saw the first part of this. We saw they're sustained through family worship. This happened after that great worship service. Remember how everyone went home, they had their feast, they, they slept overnight, and then the next morning all the dads of Israel said, we've got to keep the momentum going. And so these godly dads, they got back together with Ezra the scribe. And they said, Ezra, teach us everything that you know. We want it all. And they said, we want to go back home and then ground our wives and our kids in the truths of God's word. Friends, this is how reformations are sustained. It's within the household as godly parents commit to instilling God's truths into their children so that what they have learned and, and all the gains that they have made, that it can be passed down to the next generation. Well, today we're continuing to see how reformations are sustained long term. 
Today we're going to learn that another way is when God's people collectively resolve to be faithful to God. They make a spiritual resolution that they are going to stick closely to God's word. In fact, this is the theme of chapters 9 and 10. Today we're just looking at chapter 9. This chapter offers us yet another worship service. This service happens just two days after Israel finished celebrating the Festival of Booths. Verses 1 through 5 of the chapter give us the details of the service. Verses 6 through 37 give us a prayer that Ezra offered during the service. This passage will show us that reformations are sustained when God's people resolve, both individually and collectively, that they will be as faithful to God as God has been to them. I'll say that again. Reformations are sustained as God's people resolve that they will be as faithful to Him as He has been to them. Which means, friends, if you want to see a reformation take hold in your day, a reformation of your family life and of your church and maybe of society at large, if you long to see that, then it must begin with you and with your heart commitment. It must begin with you resolving before God that you will be faithful to Him. That everything you learn in God's word, you will follow. That everything you need to forsake, you will forsake. You will be faithful to God. Let's see this together now from verses 1 through 5. Let's see the necessity of resolving to be faithful to God. And as the first part of that, resolving to repent of every instance of unfaithfulness in our lives. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me. We see this is just what Israel did in the days of Nehemiah. The chapter begins now on the 24th day of this month. Again, this is just two days after the festival of booths. 24th day of the month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. Okay, so they had a great worship service before the festival, then they had the festival, and now they're having another worship service afterwards. And this is another service of national repentance. That's what all of this signifies. Fasting, sackcloth, earth on the head, all of these are expressions of repentance. Fasting is when you go without food for a period of time to express your spiritual needs. It's as if you're saying to God, God, I don't need food right now. What I need is you. I need your grace, your forgiveness, your mercy. I need that more than anything else. So you come to God with hunger pains. And then sackcloth. This is a cheap, uncomfortable clothing that a repentant person might wear. Think of it like a potato sack. And you're wearing it to express your spiritual impoverishment before God. And then throwing earth on the head. This was an ancient Near Eastern practice signifying the humility of the repentant person. Okay? They are as low as the ground. That's what they are communicating here. And on this day, we see the entire congregation of Israel gathering to express their national repentance once again. Verse 2, the Israelites also separated themselves from all foreigners. Now you understand this is not racial segregation, this is religious segregation. 
God had chosen Israel to be a holy nation, to be separate from all of the pagan nations around them. He had called them to be a people offering pure worship to him, a people whose lives would model his character and would not mirror the character of the unbelievers around them. And Israel was surrounded by pagan nations. And they still had many pagan peoples living within the promised land as the exiles were coming back home. And so on this day, to express their spiritual resolve, they come to God with fasting and in sackcloth, with earth on their heads, and they come as a separated people. They've withdrawn from all of the pagans around them. They want to come as a pure, holy, dedicated people to God. And it says they stood before God. They're standing out of respect for God. And it says they came confessing their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Now the scriptures are clear that God does not judge us for the sins of our ancestors. He judges each person for their own personal sins. And yet it's often the case that the sins of a father will pass down to the son. Isn't that true? Maybe as you look at your own uh, families, you might say, my grandfather had a short temper, my father had a short temper, and I have a short temper too, right? The sins of one generation just seem to pass on to the next. This is what Israel was confessing to God on this day. God, our ancestors were unfaithful to you, our grandfathers, our fathers, and we've been unfaithful in the same way. Forgive us all for our collective sins. Friends, this is what repentance looks like. And friends, everything, everything that is unlike God, that is not in conformity to his will in our lives, all of it must be confessed and forsaken. Friend, what are you holding on to that you really need to let go of right now? What sinful habit of life have you gotten yourself trapped into? What decisions are you making? What, what thought patterns have you cultivated that need to be forsaken? What do you need to talk to God about this very day? Friend, don't delay. Do business with God right here, right now now. Put it off. If you want reformation to take hold, it has to begin with you, with a personal reformation of you resolving that you will keep short accounts with God. Every sin let go of. And then submitting to the ministry of God's word. We see this in verse 3. Once we've repented of our sins, we must learn to replace those old sinful patterns with new spiritual disciplines. This is what Israel did. It says, and uh, having confessed their sins and their iniquities, verse 3, they stood up in their place and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God. Okay, so they have confessed it all in sackcloth and ashes and now they are bringing themselves joyfully voluntarily under the authority of God's word. Say, God, we're forsaking everything that you don't approve of, and now we want to know what you would have for us. 
And it says they did this for a quarter of the day. That's three hours. Three hours these people stood on their feet and just listened in silence as God's word was read and expounded upon. Now, friends, I'm sure that these people all had very busy schedules. I'm sure they had meals to cook and clothes to wash and homes to build and fields to harvest and children to educate and errands to run and all the rest of it, just like we do. But none of that kept them from an extended time in God's Word. On this day, they understood that hearing from God was the most important thing that they could do. And here I'm reminded of the story of Martha and Mary from Luke chapter 10. Do you remember that story? So Martha and Mary were sisters. And one day, Jesus came to their house, and he came to spend some time teaching his disciples. And Luke 10 tells us that Martha was just running herself ragged the whole time, trying to be the perfect hostess. She was cleaning up. She was in the kitchen trying to prepare food, keeping herself busy. Meanwhile, her sister Mary was just sitting down at Jesus' feet, soaking in all of his teachings. And after a while, Martha started to get really frustrated about this. And she actually confronted Jesus about it. And she said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to, to help me. That's what she says to Jesus. And in reply, Jesus said, Martha... You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. You see, chores and all the rest really are important. But there's also a time for laying all of that work aside and tending to the well-being of your soul. That's what the congregation of Israel was doing on this day. That's what Mary was doing in her day. And friends, there will be no reformation in our day. Not in our lives, our churches, our community, our society, unless there is a willingness on our part to step away from the daily tasks of life from time to time so that we can delve into God's word. Friends, reformations are ignited, fueled, and sustained by the glad submission of God's people to his word, and then responding to God's word with a lifestyle of worshipful obedience. This is what we find in the second part of verse 3, down into verse 5. It says, they listened to the book of the law for a quarter of a day, and then it adds, and for another quarter, so for an additional three hours, they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. So they are soaking in God's word hour after hour, and then they are responding to God's word with confession. Okay, They're confessing their faith in God, confessing his worthiness, they're confessing their sins, everything. And then they're praising God for his work in their lives. Friends, this is what worship is all about. God reveals himself through his word, and his people respond with praise and obedience. And this is what reformations are made of. This is what revivals are made of. And it is the most needful thing. Friends, if we would see reformation in our day, we must resolve together that we will be faithful to God. 
just as he has been faithful to all of us. And this takes us to verses 6 through 37. Now, this portion of the chapter records a prayer which was offered by Ezra the scribe during this worship service. And the theme of the entire prayer is the faithfulness of God. Just a couple of notes about Ezra's prayer before we um, move through it. First, as we go through, you're going to notice that the prayer seems to follow the storyline of the Bible. Starts with God, moves to creation, then moves to the plan of redemption. And I think there's a reason for this. It's because for weeks now, Israel has been reading God's word together from the very first chapter all the way through. And so as a people, they have been learning the contents of God's word, learning the storyline of the Bible. And so now as Ezra leads the congregation in prayer, he is simply reciting back to God all that they have learned, recites the story of the Bible. But something else to note here, the events recounted in this prayer, they're not just part of Israel's story. This is our story too. It's a story of God's faithfulness to all of us. As the Puritan Matthew Henry said, God's mercies to our ancestors were mercies to us. And we should take all occasions to revive the remembrance of the great things God did for our fathers in days of old. So friends, realize as we go through the story of God's faithfulness to Israel, we are looking at his faithfulness to us too because it was through Israel that God brought Christ into the world. And it's by Christ that we are saved. This is our story too. So let's work through this prayer together. Now, I'm afraid we're going to have to move very, very quickly through these verses. But we begin with the first part of verse 6. Here, Ezra affirms the uniqueness of God. He begins, You are the Lord, you alone. Notice how the word Lord there is in all caps. That's because it's translating the Hebrew word Yahweh. This is the most precious name for God in all the Bible. This is the name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. The name literally means, I am. And it speaks to the infinity of God. He is the God who has always existed and who always will exist. And he is not a God who passes through moments of time. He dwells in the eternal present. And it's a, a term describing God's independence. He does not need creation. Creation needs him. And it speaks to his self-sufficiency. It speaks to the fact that he is all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful. He is the, the one true and living God. It's also a name emphasizing God as a covenant maker and covenant keeper. That's why he revealed this name to Moses at the moment he was establishing a relationship with Moses. This is a God who is gracious, who reveals himself to people. He, he makes them to be his own special people. He works in and through them and does good things for them. This is the God that we worship. And he is a God who created all things, who upholds all things. Look at the second part of verse 6. It says, You made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is in it, 
the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. I trust you can hear the echoes of Genesis chapter 1 in this verse. We have God the creator. He makes all of the heavens. He makes the earth. He makes the land. He makes the sea. He makes the vegetation. He makes all of the animal life. He makes it all. And then he preserves it all by his power. The Apostle Paul also echoes these words in Colossians chapter 1, where he writes, By him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were made by him and through him, and in him all things hold together. God isn't just the maker, but he is that unseen power that holds the universe together that maintains the laws of nature so this universe doesn't fling apart. You understand that if God withdrew his presence from us for even one nanosecond, every particle of the universe would break up. And all of this shows God's faithfulness to us, that moment by moment, day by day, though we have sinned greatly, he still holds his universe together. He allows your heart to beat another time. He gives you another opportunity to suck oxygen into your lungs. All of it is by His faithfulness and grace. And now from creation, Ezra turns to the story of redemption, beginning with God's calling of Abraham. That's verses 7 and 8. He says, You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. Friends, in the generations following the great flood, humanity continued on its downward trajectory into depravity. It reached the point where the knowledge of the living God had almost vanished from the earth. But at just that moment, God singled out one man from all the race of men, this one man, Abram a worshiper of idols in a pagan land called Ur. And God made himself known to Abram. And he made some remarkable promises to Abram. He said, if you will follow me to a new land that I will show you, forsaking everything, your false gods, everything you've ever known, and if you'll follow me to this new land, then I will make of you a great nation. And one day every nation on earth will be blessed through your line. It was a promise that Christ would come through his line. The scriptures say that Abraham believed God and God counted it to him for righteousness. He was justified by faith. And he followed God, exactly where God told him to go. And God changed his name, signifying the new relationship. From Abram to Abraham. The the name Abram means father Abraham means father of nations. This is the beginning of the story of redemption. 
God choosing Abraham, the forefather of us all. Well, God didn't just keep his promises to Abraham, but he kept them for Abraham's descendants as well. Verses 9 through 15. Ezra prays, and you, God, saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and you heard their cry at the Red Sea, and you performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers, and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them, so they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and, right, and true laws, good statutes and commandments. Here thinking of the Ten Commandments and all of the other statutes. Verse 14, And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. You see, friends, a few generations after God chose Abraham and settled him into the promised land, a famine broke out in that land. And this prompted the descendants of Abraham to leave their promised land, to go to Egypt, which was a land of plenty. And there, the descendants of Abraham made a new home for themselves. And they prospered there in Egypt for a time. They were, they were wealthy. Their children multiplied. They thrived. But as time passed, and as the Israelites' numbers grew, the pharaohs became increasingly uneasy with this group in their, in their kingdom. And so the pharaohs began curtailing their liberties. Finally, the descendants of Abraham, the Jewish people, they were condemned to chattel slavery in Egypt. But then they cried out to God for mercy, and God answered them. God raised up the prophet Moses, and through Moses, he led the Israelites out of their enslavement in Egypt and took them back to the promised land, back to the land of Abraham. God did this by unleashing plagues on Egypt and by parting a Red Sea so the Jews could travel through on dry ground, escaping their would-be captors. As they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, God provided them with food from heaven, water from rocks. He preserved their shoes and their clothing until they reached their journey's end. God did all of this because he is a faithful God. He's a God who works wonders and miracles for his people. In fact, the Old Testament scriptures contain about 500 references to God as a worker of miracles. Fully half of those relate back to the rescue of the Jews from Egypt. This was a huge event in redemptive history. And you know, God kept his word to the Israelites even when they showed contempt for him. 
That's verses 16 through 21. Just look at verse 16 with me. It says, But they, you see the contrast here, God being faithful to them, they're not reciprocating to him. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously, and they stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. Now that phrase, stiffen their neck, the image here is of a pair of oxen wearing a yoke. You understand that the farmer does not place the yoke on the neck of his oxen to punish them. No, the farmer does it to guide the oxen to walk in straight paths so that he can plant and harvest. Well, in the same way, God gathered together the descendants of Abraham. He forged them into a nation, and he gave them his Ten Commandments and many other statutes. And these were not punishments for the people of God. No, these were to guide them in straight paths to show them the way they should go. But you know, sometimes oxen are stubborn, and they don't accept the yoke the farmer places on their necks. They will stiffen their necks, and they'll veer to the right or to the left. They will refuse the farmer's direction will in the same way the long history of Israel is the history of a people who stiffened their necks against God, who would not walk the straight paths that God laid out for them, but who turned aside to the right and to the left, who worshipped false gods, who, who embraced every abomination, who degraded themselves in the process. But even so, God was faithful End of verse 17 says, You are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. Verse 19, You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. Verse 20, You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouths and gave them water for their thirst. Verse 21, 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their sins abounded, but God's grace superabounded. And God kept his word in all of Israel's history. Every act of judgment, every act of deliverance was precisely according to his word. Verses 26 through 31 record the times of the judges and of the kings of Israel. These were times in which Israel was constantly going astray and making a mess of their lives and then crying out to God for help again. And what did God do every last time? He would come when they called. He would rescue them from the hands of their enemies, rebuild them. Even now, the people of Israel were witnessing God's faithfulness to them, allowing them to return back to the promised land after being taken into captivity by first the Assyrian Empire and then the Babylonians and then the Persians. But God was bringing them back. God had allowed them to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. He was reconstituting this nation again. See, friends, God is always faithful to his people. And that's why, verses 32 through 37, the people of Israel, through their great scribe Ezra, were coming to God again in repentance. They knew that if they did, God would restore them again. 
In 2 Chronicles 7.14, God had made this promise to Israel. He said, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. They were praying to God because they knew, they knew that he would listen, that he would forgive, that he would restore them once more. They knew that their national reformation could continue. You know, God says much the same to us today. The book of 1 John, it says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My friends, we are living in difficult days today. We are witnessing tyranny rise all over the world. We are witnessing difficult days for the Church of Christ in many places. Here in the States, we are watching the Church's numbers decline. We are seeing her courage fail. And it seems as if the trajectory is just going to continue until things get worse and worse. But you know, it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. God could do another work among us again. He brought the Great Awakening in the colonial times. He could give us another Great Awakening if He chose to do it. He gave a Great Reformation in the 16th century in Europe. He could bring Reformation to us too. There's no reason why this trajectory has to continue on a downward slope forever. But friends, if there is to be a revival or a reformation, it must begin with us. It must begin with us. It must begin with our willingness to repent of every sin, of our willingness to come under the authority of God's word and to say, whatever God says, that's what I will do. A willingness to bear Christ's yoke and to walk in his straight paths. And by the way, Christ said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. There's no hardship to walk in the way of Christ. Friends, if there is to be a reformation or a revival, it must begin with each one of us. And then perhaps God will use us to reach others and do a great work. Now maybe you're thinking, Pastor, you don't know what I've done. That's true. But God does. God does. And if God could reconcile with Israel after all the things that she did, I know that he will reconcile with you no matter what you have done. Or maybe you say, Pastor, it's too late for me. I've been in a pattern of sin too long. Too many bad consequences have mounted. Well, too, as many bad consequences as Israel experienced? Have you been in a pattern of sin as long as Israel was? Oh, friends, if God could reconcile with her, he can reconcile with you. Or maybe you say, I don't even know where to begin. Well, begin with confession. Just confess everything to God. Confess your faith, 
Confess your sins. Plead for him to restore you. My friends, reformations are sustained as God's people resolve together to be as faithful to him as he has been to them. And it begins with repentance, remembering the faithfulness of God. Well, let's bow together in prayer now. Lord, we do thank you for your faithfulness, and we pray that you would so work in us that we would resolve to be faithful to you too. And that you would help us to be encouraged by the example of Israel that though for generations she turned away from you, yet you were always willing to restore her. If she came to you with a broken and contrite heart, and so, Lord, we ask that you would work in us. Help us to be a contrite people. Help us, Lord, to, to witness a spiritual revival of our own hearts. Might there be a reformation of our own lives as we bring our lives into full conformity to your word. And Lord, help us as a local church to always be reforming, drawing ourselves closer to your word. And Lord, if you would be so kind, Lord, we would ask you to use this church and every other gospel church to spark a wider reformation, a greater revival, like the ones we saw in days of old, that we would yet witness another great spiritual work from your hand. Lord, begin that work with us, but don't let it end with us. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.